My name is Tracy Carpenter and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, welcome. We are glad that you tuned in. We believe that the church is a family and not just an event, and so we would love to connect with you. Uh, there are a few ways that you can do that. The first being um, through our website, which is www.restoredtemecula.church, um, and then click on contact. We also have a mobile app that you can get in the Apple or the Android app stores, and through that app you can see past um, messages, upcoming events, and other ways for us to connect. Um, so with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. My name is Herrick, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restored Temecula, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. Uh, if you're new, we have been working through our series this summer in the Psalms. I think it's been, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Uh, it sort of feels like, imagine if you one day find out that you have this rich tradition in your family, like a, a bunch of ancestors who actually wrote down their experiences of life in this world from like generations past. And one day, like your dad shows up, your mom or whoever shows up is like here and just hands you all these journals with all these reflections that these wise older people had uh, while they were going through their life. That's what the Psalter is kind of like. It's essentially the Psalms. It's essentially like we get this book, these different, really it's 150 Psalms, different books, but they're all for us. They all give us language and give us a fresh perspective on what it looks like to be a follower of God in this world. And we learn so much. Really, I think that when the tagline of the series, it's like whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that. And there's 150 of them, and we're making our way through a few this summer. And I think that there's help for you and for me for whatever we're facing in life today. So today's psalm, actually, I'm really excited about because it kind of flips the script on some of the hard things that we're going to go through in life. Maybe some of the hard things that you're going through right now, or some of the things that you've gone through or that you will through. Let's dive in and pray. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to open your word. I want to thank you for this time uh, together as your people. I want to thank you for this morning where we get to receive from you something fresh. I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us. And I pray that above all that you would help each of us, especially me, just to relax in your love this morning. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our psalm today is Psalm 83. I'm going to go ahead and read it all the way through. Psalm 83, if you have your Bible, if you do not, don't sweat it. We're going to have them up on this, the verses up on the screen here momentarily. Psalm 83, starting with verse 1. This is a psalm of Asaph. It says this. It says, God, verse 1, God, do not be silent. Do not be deaf. God, don't be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones, your protected ones, yours. They say, come, let's wipe out the Israelites as a nation. Let's annihilate them so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. It's a deep, serious hatred. For they have conspired with one mind. They've formed an alliance against you. This is a conspiracy against God's people, essentially. Verse 6, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, and Amalek, 
Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Here's all the people that are conspiring. Even Assyria has joined them. They lend support to the sons of Lot, Selah. So now these, all these people are conspiring against Israel, and then the superpower of the day, Assyria, is backing them. Verse 9, deal with them as you did with Midian, as you did with Sisera and Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor. They became manure for the ground. In the Bible. Giddy up. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their tribal leaders like Zeba and Zalmunna. And I'll explain a little bit about who these people are later. Who said, let us seize God's pastures for ourselves. Let's take God's land. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like straw before the wind. As fire burns through a forest, as a flame ablazes through mountains, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover them, cover their faces with shame. Why? So they will seek you. They will seek your name, Lord. Let them be put to shame and terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. It was a Saturday morning, January 1988. There were boys who were playing soccer in a field in the village of Awake in northern Uganda, or Awake. This is in East Africa. This was a very difficult life. It was very difficult to live in that place at that time. The villagers worked really hard. They had to raise, they had to farm the land, they had to raise livestock, and the children were involved in all of that. But more than just like the hard labor of working the, the earth, which is hard enough, there were threats all around. Disease everywhere. Malaria, cholera, or dysentery from contaminated water. Some of us, we grew up playing Oregon Trail, that's all we knew of dysentery, real thing. People actually die of dysentery in the world from just water that's not clean. There's problems like typhus from poor sanitation. These are all things that we call here in the West preventable diseases. They're threats that could kill you. If disease wasn't enough, there was also nature. There were lions. Uh, some of these villagers would, walk, would go, out, go out of their huts in the morning, they would see a 12-inch paw print waiting for them. There were lions. There were pythons, 12 feet long. Growing up, I thought the most powerful force in the world was the 24-inch pythons of Hulkamania, whereby he would suck the life out of his opponents. Not true. Not true. So there's disease, nature. From the north, this might be the scariest of them all. There was the Karamajong. They would come at night. So imagine you live in a hut. So don't think city, think darkness, stars, and then at night, this threat that would come in. The Karamajong, they were herders. What they did was they would steal cattle. They believed that they had a divine right to take all of the cattle in Uganda. And so they came and stole them with AK-47s in the middle of the night. And they did not hesitate to pull the trigger if somebody got in their way. So you had all these things, and you had all these dangers from the south. There was actually a government uh, that was threatening. If you know anything about the history of Uganda, there was a lot of upheaval there's Idi Amin, who's one of the most notorious despots of the 20th century, and there were many. Killed hundreds of thousands of people. He's no longer in power, but it's just been like a power play, and a vacuum that sucked up all these different people with aspirations of power and violence. 
that would fill that, that vacuum. So he had all of these different threats all the time, and then the newest one was emerging. There were whispers, whispers about raiders who would come, and they were led by a holy man who communed with powerful animist spirits, communed with the dead, essentially. And it was called essentially like this unhinged religion, this uncontrolled mayhem. That was life. So you can imagine, if you grew up in that, what would life be like for you? You're in a constant state of vigilance. On this particular Saturday, though, back in January of 1988, boys were just playing soccer. It was just a, it was just a break from school. That's all it was. Until some men arrived who looked familiar. They looked like what they were, based on how they looked, they looked like they could be family members, uh, part of the kind of extended tribe. But as they got closer, the boys realized, oh, they're carrying guns. They have AK-47s around their shoulder. This wasn't the Karamajong who attacked at night. This was a new threat during the day. And these boys were being taken. They were being abducted. These were the newest recruits into a child soldier army, uh, led by Joseph Coney. If you don't know who that is, he's, uh, he was the man. He was the holy man with the unhinged religion who would take the Bible, distort it, and basically gather a huge crowd around him and say, we're going we're gonna to take Uganda, Uganda back. And they called him, they, he had his movement called the Lord's Resistance Army. And he would grab kids and he would indoctrinate them through fear and coercion and manipulation. That particular day, Julius Achon was one of the boys. And at first, he was so thrown off at what was happening, like he wasn't even afraid. He was just trying to take it in. He's always vigilant anyway, so he's just like, okay, what are my options here? What should I do? Um, but then he realized, oh, we're, we're far from home. Even if I scream to the top of my lungs, mom and dad aren't going to hear me. Mom won't hear me, and dad's at the bar getting drunk, because that's what his dad always did. His dad uh, was a villager who actually had a pretty good opportunity to make a really good life for himself, but he squandered those opportunities. Uh, just, just an alcoholic, stuck to the bottle. And so he lived with shame, and he was stuck in a cycle that he couldn't break. And when his family needed him the most, his dad was not there. There was no one to protect him or his friends. So 15 of them were taken as the newest members of the Lord's Resistance Army which was a military coalition that was actually trying to rebel against the Ugandan government. Julius was being forced to become a child soldier. So they captured him and they took him on a 100-mile hike, essentially. They covered it in three days. If you can imagine the sort of pace that you have to keep up to cover 100 miles in three days. Going through unspeakable danger, wildlife, all these other things out in the bush of Uganda. And so what would happen is if you stepped out of line as one of these children, you could expect either a beating or a bullet. And it just kind of depended on what the specific mood was of your captor. And Julius had a captor whose name, he called himself Captain John, who just loved to brag. He was a big, strong dude who just loved to brag. He was arrogant. He was powerful. He seemed like a, you know, he was a man amongst boys. And he was proud. And so I'm going to read a quick quote. This is what life was like in the, in the camp for these boys. If death didn't come by disease or by the captain's hand, it might be delivered by the Sombaye, which was the dreaded government fighters. So again, these are, they're resisting the government, so the government itself is trying to neutralize them. And so they might, if, if, if disease didn't get them or the captain didn't get them, then they might be basically shot to death by the government 
jets that were flying close to the camp. Every day they got a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. Life in the camp had grown desperate, but escape, even the idea of escape, was actually scarier for the boys than staying there. Then, then leaving was scarier than being there. Assuming you got away with a camp, from the camp, which was just a giant assumption, because the soldiers were always watching, well aware of the thoughts the boys had in their heads because they themselves had been in the same exact spot before, many of them were taken in the same way. Assuming you escaped, your troubles were just beginning. You were on your own. If you were away from the rebels and you had no rifle, then you were fair game for the villagers who were seeking retribution. So part of what the boys did is that they went and they stole the livestock. They had to. They didn't have a choice. They had to steal the livestock from the villagers, and now the villagers want revenge. So the farmer you stole a goat from, you stole a goat from yesterday at gunpoint won't hesitate to slice you with a machete. That's the kind of life that they experienced. The pilots could get you. The villagers could get you. If you got through, then you had to get through the Sorodi Swamp, which had malarial mosquitoes, aggressive water buffalo, which if you've never seen a water buffalo, scariest moment of my life, I think, was being out in the bush in South Africa. At night, it's dark. We're driving in the you know, Range Rover, open-air Range Rover, and the driver turns with the lights, and we just see like this dark water buffalo, which if you don't know, they're like the most aggressive animals on earth. They're one of them. Terrifying. So imagine being a 12-year-old kid on your own, walking at night and experiencing that. I was in a Range Rover, whatever it was, protected. These boys would not be. And there were pythons, there were crocodiles. I mean, if you did make it back to your village, it wasn't even over yet, because you knew that there were going to be reprisals for you leaving. They were actually going to start to torture and kill your friends to get you to, as a retaliation. So it's a long way of saying Julius was stuck. These boys were stuck. They were just waiting and watching. Now imagine this. You're facing a situation that you can't control and you cannot change. It is bigger than you and you do not see a way out. There's no clear path through this. Put yourself in that kind of situation. You are weak and you are facing long odds. It feels hopeless, like defeat. This is suffering. Maybe you're here today and you know that suffering. It may not be the exact same details. Obviously, hopefully, none of you guys have ever experienced anything like that or close to it. But you do know what it's like to feel out of control. You do know what it's like to feel the chaos of the culture surrounding, swarming us in. Of conflict, maybe that you've experienced where you've felt wronged, or maybe you've wronged others or both. Every single person in this room has experienced problems in your life. Even calamity with your, in your personal life, in your family, in your community, in our nation. For Julius and Sean, it was all of the above. Kind of at once. And I know as, as I was reflecting for this message, I've realized um, that obviously I've never been through anything quite like what he experienced, but I've been through a lot of turmoil in my own life. I've experienced, I just wrote down a few, relational breakdowns that I still have nightmares about. I had one last night about this relationship that was and isn't anymore. I've been a part of a workplace that's become toxic. Obviously, all of us live through 2020, 2021, still, cultural upheaval. I've had dreams that became nightmares. Um, I've been slandered by people that I thought were friends. I've been scapegoated, blamed, because I did something or said something that someone didn't like, and they blamed me, and then they doubled down on it when called out on it. Some of that is just the position that I'm in as a pastor, but I think a lot of it is just me being human and going through life, experiencing hard things. We all know what it's like to be in situations that we can't control or change. 
So I just want to ask a couple quick questions for you. Because this isn't just a sermon to entertain you. My, my goal is actually to help you think biblically. Like, follow along with the psalmist and apply these things to your own life. So what feels hard and painful in your world today? I want you to imagine if, if I had a, a magic wand. I'm not saying this is real, by the way. Imagine if I had a magic wand. I was like, you can take this and you can change one thing, anything you want. What would that be? What would you change if you could right now? What's weighing you down today? Like, whatever that is, that's suffering. You're a sufferer. In different ways, in different times, in different seasons, all of us are going through hard things. And in the psalm that we read today, Israel is facing suffering. And it was a situation they had faced so many times. They faced things that they couldn't change or control all the time. Painful, scary, disorienting situations that produced anger. Did you notice the undercurrent of anger? It's not really an undercurrent, very explicit in the text. There's anger in, that, in, in Psalm 83 and worry. The Bible gives voice to those emotions, to anger, among many others. This is all over the Bible. It's all over human history. It's all over our lives. The book of Judges, if you've ever read it, darkest book in the Bible, potentially. Uh, when we were doing, uh, a little while back, some of you guys, if you were with us, when we were kind of going through the Bible, remember I was in a gospel community with some of you guys, and we talked about the book of Judges, and I was like, how, what do you do with this? This is darkness veiled in deeper darkness. It's bad. So we're going to talk about the book of Judges today. Set this up, I think. The book of Judges has multiple stories of the people of God facing terrible things. And the psalmist today, like a master, a genius, a poet, he takes those themes in the book of Judges and weaves, weaves them together into the psalm that we just went through and that we're going to unpack today. And he basically gave us what I'm calling the four S's of suffering. So if you're taking notes, the four S's of suffering is kind of what I'm going to be talking through today. And these four S's that we're going to unpack, basically, I think what they can do is that they can help us, strengthen us when we go through difficult moments. Whether it's big or small, whatever you're going through, this is going to help you. So let's dive into these four S's of suffering and unpack the different aspects we encounter. Number one, point number one, the first S of suffering is that we feel surrounded. The first S of suffering is that we feel Surrounded. Psalm 83, verses 2 to 5. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name might not be remembered anymore. They have conspired and formed an alliance. Uh, the people of Israel at one point in the book of Judges, uh, you may have heard of a guy's name is Gideon. He's fairly prominent in the book of Judges. We're going to be talking about him today. And uh, the book of Judges, there is a moment where the Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites. And so I'm going to read, uh, I think we've got this in the back, Judges verse, chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Just a couple of verses to give you a sense of what this was like for them. Verse 3 says, whenever the Israelites planted crops, which keep in mind this is an agrarian, like they, they depend on the land. If they don't have food, they die. It's not like us who can just go to the grocery store and pick up whatever we want. They don't, have a, they don't have crop. They might not make it. You were never far from starvation in that time, in that world. 
So this is a big deal. Verse 3, whatever the Israelites, whenever they planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. But the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. This is like a plague on Israel. Julius Achon, he lived through something similar, the Karamajan coming at night, taking the government, the government soldiers, the rebels, taking the, the people's food, the villagers' food, all that stuff was a normal part of life for them. And it was a normal part of life, unfortunately, for Israel far too often in their life. And so what's happening here? I drew a map to give you guys a sense. So if you could kick up picture number one, the map of the United States, there it is. This was taken on my phone. That is Google Maps. And I circled a bunch of small circles, bigger circles. And basically what you have here is a visual representation of what's happening in this story. Psalm 83 that echoes what happened to Israel in Judges and in other times in their history. So you have from the southwest of the United States, Arizona, New Mexico, going around California, Oregon, Idaho, all the way up to Minnesota and all the way on back to the southeast, you have these different people groups. And then in the great state of Texas, you have Assyria. I don't know why, it just felt <laughs> big, whatever. So you have all these, these people that are bent on Israel's destruction, backed by a superpower. And in the, in the middle, there's dark circles all around, in the middle is a red circle. Who do you think that is? Israel. And this is personal. If you read the psalm, if you really chill on what it's saying, it's so personal. This is essentially Israel saying, God, we're your sheep, you're our shepherd. This is your land. We're about to get slaughtered here. That's what the psalmist is saying. We're surrounded. We're your sheep, you're our shepherd. Do something. And as you read the Bible over and over again, you see this. This happens all the time. In the New Testament, you see it in the book of Acts. The apostles, the disciples are being hunted by Jewish authorities, by Roman authorities, by everybody. So this idea of feeling surrounded, really another way of thinking about it is like you're stuck. There's nowhere to go. You don't have options. You don't see a way through this. You don't see a way out of this. You're under pressure. The walls are closing in on you. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I think all of us have been there. Some of you might be there in there right now. Like that might be a part of your lived experience at this point in time. Through relationships that have gone haywire. Maybe you feel that way culturally with the pressure that um, we're all experiencing as disciples, as Christians in this time. Maybe you're experiencing that at work. I don't know. Whatever it is, you're surrounded. You're stuck. And sometimes, for some of you, you have to keep in mind that there's been people scheming against God's people for generations. Some of you will come up against, because you're a Christian, there will be people who hate you. Just because you're a Christian, just because you bear the name of a disciple, and they will conspire. I know some of you have had very vivid experiences of this happening in your life. The psalm gives voice to that. It's real. And so very quickly, I got another slide that talks kind of a little bit about what we do. There's obviously this invitation to raise our voice to God, but there's tendencies that we have as 21st century Americans. 
So rather than raising our voices to him, we can raise other things. We can raise a stink. We can complain. We can raise our voices really loud to get people to do what we want them to do. We can kind of weaponize our anger. Some of us aren't there. You've seen that. That doesn't work. That's just, that's passe. I'm going to raise my game, bro. I'm going to take my game to another level. I'm going to get really good. I'm going to basically control all that I can control in life to produce outcomes that I feel good about. Sometimes we raise a stink. Sometimes we raise our game. Sometimes we raise the remote, which I felt like this is the most 1987 point I've ever had in a sermon. There was once something called a remote that you used to use on your TV. If it helps, raise your phone for entertainment, for distraction. Rather than raising our voices to cry out to him, we can raise the remote or our phone just to distract ourselves. Or sometimes we raise another glass. And by that I mean we look to substances. Sometimes it's just I drink to forget. The reality is when we are surrounded, there are other options besides this. Let's keep going. The first S of suffering is a feeling surrounded, feeling stuck. The second one is seeking. Number two is seeking. Psalm 83, verses 16 to 18. Cover their faces with shame, so they will seek your name, Lord. Let them be put to shame and terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. Uh, in Judges chapter 6, verse 6, it says that Israel became so poverty-stricken because of Midian, the Israelites finally cried out to God. Sometimes the situations that we face, we're suffocating, uh, leads us to actually seek God, to cry out to him. Now, I have a quote. We could do quote number one in the back because some of you are probably pretty uncomfortable with all this smash their faces with shame and destroy the enemy. I think there's some hyperbole going on here. But, um, but let's read that quote, quote number one, or I'll read it to you. This is a quote from Tremper Longman III, who writes a bunch of different commentaries on this, the Bible. And he, he reflected on this, Psalm 83, and he said something that I think is important to acknowledge. Many feel uncomfortable with the psalm because of how it expresses a desire to destroy the enemy. However, the imprecation, this is an imprecatory psalm. It's calling on God to smite thy enemies, if you will, if you want a category. It's a imprecatory psalm are a way of actually turning our anger over to God. That's the key. If you're taking notes like, this is a way of turning our anger over to God. This is a way of saying like, everybody in this room will be angry at some point. You have things to be angry about, whether it's the cultural chaos that we're experiencing or ways that people have treated you, like you have anger. It's natural. But there is a way to turn that over to God without taking matters into your own hands. Notice that the psalmist didn't ask for a weapon. He didn't ask for God to give me like something that I could use to destroy these Midianites. No, he's asking, he's asking for God to do what only he can do, what only is right for him to do. And he's not taking revenge, which is a real serious danger, by the way, when you are suffering, revenge, getting back at people, getting even. As we get older, we get better at this. When we're little kids, the revenge is like hilariously over the top obvious. As we get older, 
Revenge can look like a cutting comment, just introducing doubt about people's character. It's way more subtle, and it's a real danger. In the scriptures, they don't really, you don't need, nobody needs to do that. If you're a disciple, like, revenge is never an option that needs to be taken. Rather, we can seek God and turn our anger over to him. Quote number two, it's a, a brief one, that I think sums this up so well. It says, sometimes people must be brought to nothing so that they will be brought to God. So part of, I think, what the psalmist is doing, it's saying, like, let this people, these people groups, this scheme and this plot come to nothing so that they'll know you, so that they'll know that you're actually king and that they're not. So there's a sense of seeking God for an answer. Back in the day, there were these things called landlines, fascinating devices, um, fascinating concepts, and there were phones that you would have to plug into the wall. It's really, I know it sounds crazy, it was a real thing at one point, and maybe if you were anything like me, you would spend hours on the phone with your friends talking at night uh, with the landline. Eventually, they went cordless, which was a real uh, upgrade. I was very excited about that. But I want you to imagine a situation where you have a direct line to God, You have a direct line to God, and you are picking up the phone, and you're talking. It's like, hello, is anyone there? Hello, is anybody there? And you're talking, and you're making making everything that you need known to God. This is sort of what we have going on here, a direct line to God. I've been watching this show uh, called For All Mankind. Has anybody seen this? Oh, not a single person. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to do a little explaining. This show, uh, basically, it's an alternative history, and I love alternative histories. There was a show called Man in the High Castle that was an alternative history of like what would have happened if the Nazis had won the war. Great idea, not the greatest execution. We'll set that aside for that show. This one, though, For All Mankind, is basically a show where it invites you to reimagine what if the Soviets had landed on the moon first. Yep. It's, that's exactly right. For those of you that don't know, we used to go up to the moon. It became rote at one point, which is still crazy to me. But it became, uh, and we stopped. We got to the moon and we stopped. So back in the day, there was a, war, a race to get to the moon first. The U.S. won that race. So imagine, though, if the U.S. had not won that race, what would happen? So this show, that's what, it, that's what happens. And there's these uh, little boxes. I think they're called Vox, like V-O-X. And if, you're, if your spouse is an astronaut uh, or whatever, they give you this box so that you can listen in to what's happening between mission control and the moon. And so there's all this communication happening. And maybe you've heard like the, this sort of communication before, if you've like, ever watched a documentary on this. But it would be like, um, you know, Eagle, this is Houston. Do you copy? Eagle, this is Houston. Do you copy? So they're essentially what they're doing is they are reaching out beyond this world to another looking for an answer. Have you stirred the tanks? Or whatever. Whatever the the question might be. So this psalm is essentially that. I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm scared, I'm reaching out, and I'm asking for an answer. Please do something, God. So as God's people experience 
that suffering of being surrounded, what God's people have always done is they've sought God's response to the current crisis. That's what we're invited to do in this psalm. So I just got to ask the question before we move on to the next one. Like, what might it look like to seek God in the midst of whatever you're going through? The psalm actually invites you to reflect on that. It invites me to reflect on that. It invites all of us to reflect on that. So the second S of suffering is seeking. Number one, surrounded. Number two, seeking. Number three, and this is the worst one by far, silence. Silence under pressure. Psalm 83, verse one. God, did you wonder why the psalmist says, God, do not keep silent, do not be deaf. God, don't be quiet. Why does he say that? I think what's happening here is essentially what happened on the show that I was watching where Apollo 11, which in our world was the first people that land on the moon, it was Apollo 11. In that world, they were not the first people to land on the moon. They're the second, because the Russians landed there first. And there's a moment where uh, Neil Armstrong is you know, piloting the lunar module or whatever it is, and um, he realizes like it's the last kind of 20 seconds of, of the landing. It's the most dangerous, the most important part of the whole mission, and he starts having problems. They start having issues about where to land. The, the, the terrain isn't what they thought it was going to be. And then you hear like the, and then it goes silent. The video feeds go down. Telecommunications go down. All of a sudden, we have astronauts on the moon, but we don't know what happened to them. And so there's this uh, moment on the show where all you hear is, Eagle, this is Houston, do you copy? Eagle, this is Houston, do you copy? And Eagle would be the, the Eagle has landed, the lunar module. In our world, it was like a yes. In that world, it was just silence. And you can imagine the fear, the worry, the dread. There's a lot hanging on that response, but there's no response. That's the experience that the psalmist has, that he's speaking to. That's the experience of Israel over and over again. Houston, do you copy? Or Houston, this is, Eagle, this is Houston, do you copy? God, where are you? It's that kind of experience. Grant Clark, if you weren't here for a message that he preached, don't remember what that message was called. Hello, darkness, mild friends is what we should have titled it. But basically, he like kind of walked through the darkest psalm. If you want to go deeper into this, this, this silence, I want to encourage you to check that message out if you haven't already. He does a much better job of it than I can do right now. Have you ever been in a spot where you need an answer, but you feel like all you're getting is crickets? Have you ever, feel like, you ever felt like you've been kind of dialing the direct line to God and it's just silence on the other line? Just nothing. Have you ever gotten just so confused about a whole situation that you just kind of got tired of waiting and put the phone down or just stopped calling? Maybe have you ever gotten to the point where you've just forgotten that you actually have a direct line? I've been there several times. There was one time when I was waiting for an answer for eight years. Eight years. I would energetically pick up the phone to call. Then I would go through months where I wouldn't even bother to call, where I'd just forget there was a phone there. And I've gone through everything in between. I did a little bit of math just because it's fun. I've spent one out of every five days I've been on this earth waiting for that one thing to be answered. In Psalm 83, we're reminded that Israel often found herself waiting for an answer, asking God, don't be silent, please. 
And we get an interesting look at this in the story of Gideon, Judges 6, verses 12 to 13. This is what Gideon says to God. Gideon says, my Lord, if you are with us, why has this all happened? Why are, we, why are the Midianites oppressing us? Why? Why is life so hard? Why is everything so difficult? Where are all the wonders of God that our ancestors told us about? There's a little bit of cynicism there, you know? Maybe just a touch. Hasn't God brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian? That's a real experience that God's people have had. It's not unusual to feel like that when you're under pressure. When that health diagnosis comes in, or you go through that breakup, or that job opportunity goes to somebody else, or your career stagnates, or you feel unclear or even lost about a major decision in life, or that longing that you have for a boyfriend or a spouse or a different spouse or a better spouse is unmet, it's not unusual for God to feel silent. It's just normal. You're not crazy, and you don't need to feel otherwise. Imagine what that would be like. Gideon, the people of God, when they were going through what they were going through, that was seven years. Seven years of waiting. It would be so easy to just walk away and to just assume God doesn't care or he's powerless. So easy. It's either like, God, you, you literally are a shepherd, you are a, a, an unfaithful shepherd or you're just not there. One way or, another, or you are there and you just have no power or care for us. It's brutal. So the darkest part of our suffering is the silence that we experience. It's normal. If you're going through that today, I just want you to know it's normal. If you go through that tomorrow, next week, next year, it's normal. So we, have, we experience feeling surrounded, stuck. We experience seeking God and silence under pressure. And then number four, the fourth S of suffering is a surprise. A surprise. This psalm is ultimately a meditation on the story of Gideon. Psalm 83 is a meditation on that story. So Gideon, the people of Israel, they're suffering, they're facing long odds, and they cry out to God, who calls Gideon, who's a little bit afraid, if you know the story. He needs a little bit of reassurance in his life when he's facing God. He basically asks God to do the equivalent of some magic tricks to make sure that this is really God. Like, here, pull a card out of this deck. If it's a five of hearts, I know that it's you. God pulls it, and he's like, okay, make it a two of clubs. Pull it. Kidding me. That's basically what happens between God and Gideon. So he needs a ton of reassurance. It's a stall tactic, I think, which I've been there before. You've probably been there before. But in any case, Gideon had 22,000 soldiers. So he had a pretty decent army, right? 22,000, we can get somewhere with that. We can work with that. Do you know what God did? He trimmed that back to 300 in the weirdest way possible. It's like, check out how they would drink water. If anybody laps water like a dog, do this. It's just weird. There's weird stuff in the Bible. There's real honest stuff and just real weird stuff. It got trimmed back to 300. So now it went from, ooh, this could be good, to we're screwed. This is an unfair fight. The odds are long, and we are weak. Judges 7, to 19, 7, 19 to 22, contains the surprise. Here we go. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the, of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns. 
and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Basically, what they had was pitchers, lamps, torches. They had no weapons. So they, they made noise. That's what they did. The three companies blew their horns and shattered their pitchers, just make a loud sound, like having cymbals or something. They held their torches. They had flashlights and cymbals to face warriors. How would you feel? They held their torches in their left hands and the ram's horns to blow in their right hands, and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, which sounds amazing. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings until you realize these aren't, they've got nothing. They have nothing. Each Israelite took his position around the camp. The entire Midianite army began to run, and they cried as they fled. What's going on? When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. So with some Roman candles and flashlights, we could defeat the U.S. Army. Crazy. Crazy stuff. And then they fled. And then the Israelites went after them. What do you know? These stories. Chaos ultimately collapses in on itself. The chaos that the enemies of God introduce into his world will not last. It will destroy itself. It's self-destructive. If you've ever been around someone, I'm not making light of this because this is serious. So there are people who feel like they just self-sabotage. If you know someone like that, it's really sad to see. You just know, give them time, they'll implode, right? It's really, really sad. That's a kind of a parallel to where chaos essentially will collapse in on itself. Just give it time. Do you remember the, the imagery in the psalm? It was like, make them blow away. That's what happens to the people who oppose God. So when everything seemed lost, the enemies of God and his people, the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people meet their end. Apparent defeat can lead to deliverance. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's worth chewing on this week. Apparent defeat can lead to deliverance. Uh, hours passed, and the boys, the child soldiers, sat and waited on one specific day. It had been months since they had been abducted. And what happened is that Joseph Coney, who was leading this army, he really liked to attack kind of at night. He didn't like direct engagements, but once he decided we're going to do it, we're going to have a direct engagement. The boys stayed back, and the captains went to battle. So Captain John, Julius's captor, went to battle. So they heard booms, blasts, the howls of artillery. This is war now. There's a lot of waiting before, now it's war. He had learned, Julius had learned to expect calamity, terrible dark forces pursuing him. And that's kind of what it can feel like when we're suffering. It can just feel like we expect the worst, we just anticipate. What can go wrong will go wrong, and that's where he was at. Rebel soldiers soon started reeling in, sweating, bleeding, panic-stricken. These were their captors. Wild-eyed, they just blew past the boys who awaited the verdict. For months, these, these rebels had watched the boys every moment. Now, it was like the boys were invisible to the captains. And here, Captain John, the brash, arrogant, strong captor, was sprinting wildly, and he told Julius, get out of the way, just move. Defeat, Julius realized. Defeat. 
We've been defeated. And he was just beginning to process kind of this fact. What does this mean? He's, he's always wondering, like, what do I need to do? He's always figuring out how to problem solve. When he heard a terrible sound that seemed to swallow him, like the red earth shook, the pine trees, they all just started trembling, and it seemed like the whole earth would split open. What happened? A sombaye, a government plane, started shooting at them. They didn't know that they were child soldiers. All they saw was people running around, rebels. Julius dove for cover. And what ends up happening is that, incredibly, the boys, in order to get out of the way of the gunfire, like they go across this clearing, and they basically get up along a tree, and they wait, and they're like, our captors are going to come back, and they're going to slaughter us for leaving. But we have no choice. We're going to get slaughtered by this fire from above or our captors from below. But something crazy happens. They never show up. The captors don't show up. So then they begin that 100-mile trek back. A lot of loss, a lot of death. Not all of them made it, but Julius did. And they trekked all the way back to Owake to wake the, the village. And when he returned, it was like he was back from the dead. Death, which was so insatiable, and I'm quoting, and indiscriminate in Uganda, oddly seemed to have no taste for Julius Achon. Christina, his mother, rejoiced. When Julius was gone, she told him, the family prayed for your deliverance. The entire family, even your father. His father was a drunk. Yes, God had been merciful, returning both Julius and Charles, the father, to Christina. One day after the rains, Charles had drunk so much that then what they were drinking was like 20% alcohol. So if you can imagine, stronger than one, I mean, he drank so much of that that he became sick and nearly died. But since that day, he hadn't touched a drop. Charles resumed working hard and was now providing for the family. He prayed every day for forgiveness, and Christina said that he prayed for Julius's welfare and returned. Now all of their prayers, praise God, had been answered. Apparent defeat can lead to deliverance, even the things that we're afraid of. The sombaye, like the, the pilots shooting, shooting them up, were actually what God used to deliver them. It's crazy. Apparent defeat can lead to deliverance. How is the big question. I want to leave you with this. This is really important. In defeat, we learn that our hope is not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I'll say that again. In defeat, we learn that our hope is not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Does that language sound familiar to some of you? Probably will. Because it's the same lesson that Christians have been learning for generations. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 11. This is the Apostle Paul. So this is, we're talking generations after the Psalms and after Gideon. This is what he says as he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, suffering. We had even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. That's the point of the suffering. That's what Paul took away from it. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. When the nation, the people, cry out to God, defeat can lead to deliverance. The things that we would love to avoid can actually be exactly what we need to learn to turn to God. 
This is a profound reality that I don't know that we can take it all in at once. So I'm just praying that God would give us something this week. No matter how small of a defeat, small thing, small problem, or huge one that you're facing, that he would remind you, like, this might be exactly the situation, custom fit for you to learn to turn to me. Here's the thing. I think that kind of faith can unlock a life of taking risks and fruit that we can hardly imagine as disciples in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhood. But we will never be the kind of people who actually live that way unless we realize that what appeared to be the greatest defeat in human history led to our deliverance, Jesus. On that cross, Jesus, God himself, appeared defeated, dead, buried. Not appeared, he was. He took sin and death with him into the grave and he emerged victorious. Three days later, sin and death no longer rule. Sin and, reth- sin and death no longer rule. Yes, obviously we still see sin in the world and in, and in here too. And people are still dying, but the power of sin has been broken. And one day the presence of sin will be removed from this world, from this world completely. And right now we stand, we hang in the balance, learning what it looks like to trust God no matter how bad things look. The greatest defeat in human history led to our deliverance. Do you believe that today? Is that something that you've received? His victory defines your life and your prayers even. His victory, not your failure, his victory. Defeat can lead to victory as we learn not to trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. I'm gonna call the band up. As I thought about this message, there's always people praying for what's happening. And um, one of the things that I, uh, Heidi, who's not here uh, today, um, I think one of their boys is sick. She texted me something that I thought was really profound. And uh, it's on my phone, which I don't have. It's fine. I'm going to tell you from memory. She got this distinct impression that there are people, potentially in this room, in our church, that have experienced really terrible things that have been done to you, but in a sense, it's kind of like controlling you. And it has been really hard to find freedom and release from the things that have been done to you. Maybe ways you've been disappointed, ways that you have been hurt, ways in which people have failed you, ways in which you've been violated. All these different possibilities are there. And I think the invitation today is that Jesus can take that defeat, whatever that is, and it can be the cause for your delivery. It could be the context for you to experience forgiveness. Because sometimes what happens to us when we feel wronged is that we become bitter people, or we become controlling, or we become all sorts of things. Because we feel like Israel in the middle of that map, surrounded, God, where are you? And then we hit the eject button. Or we put the phone down, or whatever the case may be. And the reality is Jesus is our good shepherd, who loves his sheep. He actually laid down his life for his sheep. So he can not only comfort you and heal you from the things that have been done to you, but he will also forgive you for the ways in which maybe you've taken things in your own hands, taken matters into your own hands. So you might be a sinner today in need of forgiveness. Hint, everyone is a sinner in need of forgiveness. 
but there might be a sense in which you might not be experiencing the fullness of that today. So I think there is an invitation to receive his forgiveness. As I was thinking about my own life, something, this must have been God because I'm not the kind of person that just has these sort of thoughts. I was thinking about how much I actually have in common with God's enemies. I have been the kind of person who in my life have used people. I have objectified people. I've sinned. I've hurt people. And there was a strange comfort that came over me when I realized like Jesus died for his enemies, me. And maybe you're here and you've never had that realization yet. There's an opportunity, I think, for Jesus to gently tell you like, yes. And I extend my forgiveness from my throne of grace for you. So if you're, whatever you're going through this week, maybe there's a sense of like sin being highlighted in your life, ways that you've tried to control things, manipulate people or whatever. Just remember, like, he is a forgiving king who sits on the throne of grace, who died for his enemies. He didn't destroy them. He died for them and was raised. And now, people all over the world are coming to know him as king and as savior and as lord, and that includes us. So you might be a sinner in need of forgiveness. You may not be addicted to substances, but you might be like Charles in the story, Julius's dad, who actually was looking to something else to satisfy and save him. A lot of us won't necessarily be, some of us will be addicted to substances, but a lot of us won't. But we could be addicted to money. We could be addicted to popularity, to relationships, to possessions. Maybe we've not yet released those pursuits and received forgiveness. Charles is now a Christian walking with Jesus. It's amazing. Some of you are just suffering and in need of comfort. You've just had a hard life. You're experiencing hard things, and today you need to know he's your shepherd, that you might feel alone, you might feel surrounded, you might feel stuck in life. He's a shepherd who knows how to handle his sheep with gentleness and care, and you might need to go to him. And others of you, I think, are sort of like the saints in the story. I think a lot of us just need a good reminder, like, hey, there's people in your life who don't know God as king, and you're in their life to reveal that to them. Because at the end of the day, this imprecatory psalm, the desire was for people to know you, to seek you through whatever means necessary. And so that might be what God wants to highlight to you today. You're in your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood because he wants to be known. And maybe that is hard to believe, to receive, to even know what to do with that. If any of those speak to you, a sufferer in need of comfort, sinner in need of forgiveness, or you're a saint in need of direction in life, I want to encourage you to go get prayer. I'm going to ask the prayer team actually to head over that way. I'm going to encourage the rest of you to stand up if you're able to. We're going to sing. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Jesus, thank you that your defeat on the cross was just an apparent defeat that led to our deliverance. And that as we get to know you better, we can learn that in defeat, we realize that our hope is not in ourselves, but in you who raised the dead. Thank you, Father, that you're the God and the King of the universe. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. I pray that you continue to reveal yourself to me and to everyone here and to speak to each of us individually about how you want to transform the suffering that we're experiencing right now into a cause of celebration and eternal joy. God, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, we're gonna sing. I'm gonna stop talking.
Father, thank you that you are a gracious king. You're a good dad that you turn shame into glory. And there really is nothing better than you, nothing better than knowing you. No earthly pleasure, comfort, power, approval can match it. Knowing you, knowing you is better than all the rest. God, we, we thank you for that. May it be so in our hearts, starting with mine. We love you, Father. And we're grateful to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Lisa uh, prays for the church uh, community every week, and she leads a team along with Heidi, a prayer team. And uh, today, while they were praying, there were some things that came up, and I'm going to grab the mic for you. So there's some things, ways to potentially respond, or at least some things to chew on for this morning. someone who may be suffering. Um, it could be something that, that's been going on for a long time. Um, the sense that it could be pain in the left shoulder blade, possibly chronic headaches. Um, also had an impression of someone who uh, perhaps has seen something either in the news or uh, in media that has been haunting them. Um, would love to pray for you. Um, and then one other impression um, of someone who as a child saw something um, happen to their mother that was hurtful. I would love to pray for you. Um, and I feel like, though I don't understand it, uh, the words from the Disney movie, like the movie Bambi, comes to mind. So I don't know if that means anything to you, but the Lord knows. Thank you. If any of those things uh, resonate with you, there's gonna be time to pray afterwards. And uh, Lisa will be up here, and we got a prayer team here that's ready uh, to minister to you. I mentioned earlier that at one point I was praying for eight years for something, and I finally got an unexpected answer. It was a yes. And one of the, I've been able to reflect on that now in the, the last eight years, and there was a shift that took place, I think, because of the waiting. There's no sense once I got that yes of, of like, look at me. It was instead, look at him who came through. And that's very much the sense in the book of Judges of what we see. The book of Judges is a dark book, but there's a sense of like, look at him. Look at these terrible circumstances, but look at the way he's come through. And so that's something I want to leave with you today. Whatever you're going through, whatever pain, difficulty you're going through, like there's a sense in which even in the delay, even in the waiting, it can turn pride into humility. Like real humility that says, look at him. And it could lead to transformation. Um, one of the things that really struck, just struck me going through the New Testament is how the Apostle Paul, you know, I read some of his words earlier about suffering. The Apostle Paul just has a totally different take on things. And he actually talks at one point about how when he was slandered, like he did good to those people that slandered him. And I don't know if you know what slander is, but it's basically like when someone assassinates your character. And it's one of the most painful things 
that I think anybody could go through. We've all probably been through it at one point or another. But the Apostle Paul, actually, Jesus grabbed a hold of him in such a way where he was able to bless people who did really terrible things to him. And so as we suffer, as we learn to rely on God and turn to him, it can actually transform our suffering to become like Jesus in the midst of it, who loved his enemies and died for them. This is the God that we are here to learn about, the God that hopefully many of you are following or do have a desire to follow. This is him. He's really amazing, he's really good. And he waits for you. Like you can call out to him today. One practical way to do that, to seek him, is to go get prayer. Whether it's from somebody from our prayer team or somebody else in this room, I wanna encourage you, like if you're suffering, if you're going through something, or there's just something stirring within your heart this morning, go get prayer. Don't miss the opportunity to receive. Before I close, um, one more thing. I read the whole book of Julius Achon's life this week, and I wish I had more time. But today, uh, Julius Achon, a child soldier who was delivered out of the Lord's Resistance Army, he actually went through a whole bunch of defeats after that. He became a runner who had Olympic aspirations, never was fully able to de deliver on his promise as a runner because of just hard life. But one thing I noticed is that in his life, he's now a follower of Jesus, he loves Jesus. In his life, every defeat that he experienced with the benefit of hindsight led to something amazing. His NCAA running career basically came to an end because he was paid $2,000 at a meet. And because of NCAA's rules at the time about receiving pay, he didn't know that it was wrong, but he, like, he took it. And, um, and he's a guy of a lot of character. That actually cost him his career. But that $2,000 actually was used to buy an acre of land that saved his family during war several years later. And there's just one story after another after another. Every defeat, every failure being redeemed. God really does redeem the pain that we experience, even if we can't see it right now. I think in the final analysis, we'll see that. And it'll actually be a way that we say, not look at me, look at him. Look at him. So I want to encourage you this week, look at him. I understand that in the history of this world, we're going to lose a bunch of battles. That's inevitable. But if the idea behind the spiritual warfare that we're, that we're a part of in this world, the idea is to help people see God as king, then guess what? Even when we lose, we win. Because the church is still here. The church, 2,000 years later, after insane suffering and persecution, we're gathered here. Your lives are being changed. My life is being changed by the king who sits on the throne. Lots of losses along the way, but one day this is all going to end in spectacular glory. All the shame will be turned to glory, just like we sang this morning. So I invite you to go get prayer. If anything that happened this morning stood out to you, if not, just enjoy a few minutes. Go, please, if you have kids, we've got seven minutes before 12 o'clock, so you can go grab your children at that point. And I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. I'll be up here if anybody wants to chat. Lots of